got one song to sing for you. This is 1958. Bill Foster, Brooklyn's ambassador to the world. Did you happen to hear the news about what's happening in Brooklyn? I've really got the blues about what's happening in Brooklyn. It ain't official yet. Official, we hope it don't get. But my friends, beware and let me warn you. Look like they're moving our bumps to California. Let's shoot the Dodgers in Brooklyn. The house is not home without some love. Let's keep them on our premises and they will be a nemesis because Brooklyn fits the Dodgers like a <laughs> It has everything that we've come to expect from Wes Anderson. Carefully crafted aesthetics, perfect color palettes, and intricate tableau of actors. That's from Taryn Allen of Chicago Reader talking about our new release this week in theaters, The French Dispatch, from that great director, Wes Anderson. Our old film, the 20th anniversary of Monsters Ball. Halle Berry wins an Academy Award. Billy Bob Thornton, fantastic. Heath Ledger, Peter Boyle from director Mark Forster. And our wild card, well, this is the thing. We get a lot of feedback here, Cody. I look at Apple Podcasts. I take it very seriously. People say this is too much of a boys club. You know, it's just you and Cody playing grab ass with each other. It's always male guests. How about getting some women? I said, great. So it was great to have Justine Bateman last week. But because we had 55-year-old female Justine Bateman, market correction, we're having 76-year-old straight yes. white male Jeffrey Lyons on the podcast <laughs> this week. Father of Ben Lyons, noted film critic. He has a new book called Hemingway and Me. Everyone knows I'm a big Hemingway guy, so I actually hit up Ben and go, hey, saw your dad has a book about Hemingway. Could he come on and talk Hemingway? He goes, of course he would. Are you crazy? And, of course, we'll talk movies. In fact, Jeffrey Lyons' favorite movie. You always want to ask a film critic, hey, what's your favorite movie? Mm-hmm. He gives us that answer and lots more as well. So go, into, go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Review. Before we get rolling, I meant to tell you the story for what's happened with The Last Duel, which was two weeks ago now. So I normally catch my movies matinees because the kids are at school. So I'm like, all right, I get in and get out. I'm not missing anything, like a noon show. So I'm checking. I need to find like a 12 o'clock show in my area. I see one that's about 15 minutes away, a theater that I'm not familiar with. I'm like, let me go check it out. Last Duel, let's get it done. I go up there, and it's like um, one of these like second-run theaters. Like, you know, it's kind of old. You're like, okay, it's not, like, it's not like your local AMC. But I'm like, great. I walk in. No one's there. No cashier, no. Like the lights are on. Oh, so the no, I thought you meant in the theater. Like no, it was no, an empty I, theater. I, I, like I literally, literally no open one. The door. No, I walk in. <laughs> there's no one there to, to greet you. It's like you know, the, you buy the tickets inside. There's nobody at the concession, <laughs> and I'm like, it's just vacant. So I look and I go, hello, 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 <laughs> the old the hello. hello, 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 hello. <laughs> nothing, no. I like I literally open the bathroom. Hello, nothing. Was there Women's a bell store? to ring? I don't know why I've got a no bell. bell. Exactly, you needed a bell. Nothing. I go. Okay, I guess I'll just wait a minute. Wait a minute. I go, this is ridiculous. I, I can't keep waiting. The movie's already... Se- I'm going to see the movie. <laughs> I just walk down there, and I just see the last two. Open the door, plop down. I'm a plopper. And I, I just plop down like Susie and Curb. And I just start watching the movie. And I'm like, I'm hoping somebody will come in at some point. I'm like, hey, sir. I'm like, yeah, I was waiting for you. Where are you? Yeah. No usher? No one. I watch the film. As I'm walking out, there's a woman there at the front. And of course, moralist that I am, I don't want to get away with a free movie. I go, excuse yeah. me. I was... Uh, here, like two hours ago, trying to find you, trying to see this movie, uh, The Last Duel. And she just stares at me blank-faced, not even apologetic or concerned or taken aback. She just kind of stares at me, and I go, so I wanted to pay for the movie now. She's like, okay. 
shrugs, what? looks it up, and she's like, that'll be $5. And I go, by the way, incredible that it's only $5. Like, I'm definitely going back to that theater, $5 on Tuesday, you know, the $5 Tuesday. But shocking that I was being honest. I thought she'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, or thank you for being honest. I could have walked out of there, Chris Cody, with a <laughs> free movie. That's so weird. There was, like, so you didn't get to get a, like, you probably would have bought, like, a slushy popcorn or something. No, like, you didn't even yeah, get that. Absolutely. Right. I had nothing. And I, and I could see it. The popcorn machine was working. I'm like, I could just literally go back there and grab a couple, you know. <laughs> I feel like you were looking for an explanation more than anything. Like, what happened a couple hours ago? Why nailed was there it. nobody anywhere? You know, I was looking for her to say, oh, I threw up. Somebody was sick. I was right. coming for someone. Okay, okay no that makes oh, sense. I was like, right. I was here, and she's just staring at me blank face. Like, so I'd like to pay for my ticket now. I'm like, okay, thanks. Five dollars. You're a nice guy, man. Look at you. Well, this brings up the other pack that I want to get into with you specifically is that are you a monster for not returning shopping carts? A big topic this today week, in the Levitard show. Yeah, we got into this week. Can you explain it, this? Yeah. Look, man, I said... A cu- like years ago at this point, it's one of my most, like I have a few things that I've said over the years that just sticks with people. And I just said that I will, because someone brought up bringing back your car and I'm just like, no, I put it in front of my car. If I see a corral near me, I'll put it in that corral. Yes. But, and, but then people started coming at me like, you don't walk it all the way back into the store. No. You're a monster. And I'm like, I never see anybody walking it all the way back into the store. No. I'm with you. Don't leave it in the middle of the spot. I've actually come around on this. I used to be the guy that's like, if it's safely in between the spots, it's fine. There's somebody's job that's to go corral them. I mean, I didn't think it was that big a deal. I just see a lot of glass houses. A lot of people are throwing stones in this category where I guarantee you, look in the mirror. You're not yeah. returning your cart the way you're saying. Don't don't tweet at me that I'm an evil monster and this says a lot about the person. No. Right. Okay? I'm honest. Okay? I'm saying that I'll put it back in the corral, but I'm like, it's just a lot of glass houses on this topic, I feel. I totally with you. The worst one is the guy who puts it in the middle of the parking spot. Like, that is just right. a disaster. Now, I, can't I never said I did that. But I, I am just 100% like, I, I don't think it's an I don't think it's an evil trait to no. just leave it at, in the in the safe spot. Like you know when there's four cars parked in four spots, there's like that little middle area at the yeah. corner of the spot where the lines cross. Right there, you just put the car right there. You're not bothering anybody's spot. And people act like I was a monster. You're right. If it's close by, I got no issue with that. I'm literally walking 10 to, 10 to 20 steps. No problem. Great. But if not, I'm not, I'm not going to go all that way. Somebody has right. a job to do that. I couldn't right. do anything more. It's just, I, I, it's really just the, the, the culture of Twitter and people want to like, you're a terrible, it's like, don't do this. Okay. Yeah. Just because I'm honest and I admit to you that I don't always, like just, I'm, I'm a human. Okay. Twitter. Social media trying to take down Chris Cody. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. By the way, if you like the podcast, though, tweet us. That's in a file pod. Yeah. Let us know what we're doing well. I do see lots of t- oh, tweets. Oh, you're going to tweet. They're going to tweet me. They're going to tweet me, and they're going to say, I bring my cart back. I'll, it's like, no, you don't. Okay? Okay. Those tweets you can directly send to Chris Cody. Do not include in a file pod. I don't want to read through all those <laughs> tweets. People blame based in Cody. All right. Let's go to the movies, all right? The French Dispatch. New film from Wes Anderson. He's one of these filmmakers. Listen, when, when I saw his early work, Bottle Rocket, which was championed by Martin Scorsese and many of those in the independent film circuit. You know, really good movie, quirky, clever. Rushmore is outstanding, comes out in 1998. Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray. Bill Murray in the role of a lifetime. And it's a hilarious movie, coming-of-age story. And then The Royal Tenenbaums, which I think is his best movie. Amazing cast. Gene Hackman, Ben Stiller, Angelica Houston, Danny Glover. So many incredible performances. Owen Wilson. I go, this guy has such a unique vision. He's smart. He's funny, he's clever, and he's got a very unique sensibility. When you see a Wes Anderson film, there's no other film quite like it. However, he followed it up with a bunch of films which I found to be disappointing. The Life Aquatic was a real miss. 
real big bore. Um, he had a bit of a comeback. The last few films people have liked, although, again, I like them. I haven't loved them. Grand Budapest Hotel, Moonrise Kingdom, decent movies, but never quite the highs of where he was. We'll do Royal Tenenbaums at some point here in Cinefog, because that's also the 20th anniversary of, again, one of my personal favorite films. So you see this movie called The French Dispatch, and it's kind of like Cody, an athlete that you like. You say, well, he's past his prime, but i got to tell you, that three-year stretch, he was unbelievable. So I still feel like he's going to get back to where he was, even though, no, he's an aging athlete at this point. He's just going through the motions. And that's in many ways what Wes Anderson is doing with The French Dispatch. Here's what's good about it. His movies are so much fun to look at. If you actually look at the frame, there's so much in there. There's just like the art direction is spectacular, the production design. Like he just, he crams so much in there and it's so detailed and so meticulous. And at its best, it's charming and it's witty and it's whimsical. But at its worst, it's insufferable and self-indulgent. So this story, again, he's got all the regulars. I get to tell you what, the cast, they all love working with this guy. Bill Murray will never say no to working with Wes Anderson. You're never going to get a no from Jason Schwartzman. Never going to get a no from Owen Wilson. All these guys love it. Willem Dafoe shows up in the movie. So he gets this cast, which, I mean, these actors are phenomenal. Not only those guys I mentioned, but also Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, Benicio Del Toro, hmm. Adrian Brody, who was in uh, the George Ealing Limited. But here's what the story is. A love letter to journalists is set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine. So the first scene you see, Bill Murray is the editor, and he's going over some stories, and unfortunately he has passed away. So they go the story in reverse. Let's see what the French Dispatch was all about, this magazine that this editor put together. So it's three separate stories, three vignettes, which are actual stories that were featured in the magazine. So the first story is actually genuinely funny. Benicio Del Toro plays a prisoner who has a really great artistic streak. And Adrian Brody plays the guy who wants to capitalize on this. He plays Julian Cadazio, Del Toro's Moses Rosenthaler. So Benicio Del Toro, his painting, he's literally painting a nude woman. Like, well, the first thing, what is this? And it, by the way, this, the color palette, it goes from color to black and white, just painting a nude woman but he's got this great artistic streak. Adrian Brody goes and meets him, this rat-a-tat patter. He's like, I like what you're doing. I know you're a convict. I know you've murdered people, but I want to buy your painting. I think it's worth a lot of money. Can I give you 250 francs? They go back and forth. It's funny. It's clever. And that whole section I really like because it was inventive. And again, it's the best of Wes Anderson. The second story is about Timothée Chalamet and Francis McDormand. And I don't want to okay, give too much away, but it's just pointless. Like I'm watching the story, and I'm like, why is this interesting or funny or any of the above? And then the third story, which is involves Jeffrey Wright as a writer talking about his past and talking about his books, there's one sequence that goes into animation. And again, if you see a lot of movies like me, Cody, you appreciate films that are different. You go, hey, I don't yeah. often see a movie in which there's three small stories and they're in black and white and then there's an animation sequence for five minutes. So I, I always applaud Wes Anderson's originality and his unique sensibilities. But I gotta be honest with you. If I said to you, Chris, you're really gonna like this movie, I'd be lying. I, I think of the, <laughs> of the hour 45 minutes, I love the first story and the other two I was kind of like, meh. So I'm going to give this film two Maple Leafs. I, I want to give it more because, again, there's so many damn superhero movies, as you and I have talked about. There's so many cookie-cutter movies. At least Wes Anderson makes different movies, and there's nothing quite like his films. But I have to be honest. Would I rewatch this movie? No. Do I think it's as good as his other movies? No. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to give it two Maple Leafs. But if you like something different, I'd recommend it. I just realized in this, I Googled it. I don't think I've seen a single Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> I, I've seen like this. I think I've seen parts of the Royal Tenenbaums, but it was when I was young, so I don't really remember it. But you're familiar but I, with it. If I said you Rushmore, oh, no. you would know what I'm talking about. Obviously. Oh, for sure. For sure. And that's why I don't know why I haven't, because I do, like you, like movies and directors that just do stuff that's different. 
So I'm, I, I need to, I, I want to investigate. I want to watch the Royal Tenenbaums since you say that's his best. And uh, this one kind of intrigued me. You see that the, the way the, the, the preview starts with uh, Owen Wilson on his bike. Like that was like, that kind of was an intriguing start to a preview. But no, I did not see it. And, uh, but I'm intrigued by it. Wes Anderson, what's wrong with me? Why have I never seen a Wes Anderson movie? Now, this is good. This is good homework for you. So either watch Rushmore or Royal Tenenbaums. I think they're both great. I personally prefer Tenenbaums. Some people prefer Rushmore. I think you'd like either one. So that, that's yeah. Chris Cody's homework. We'll do that for another time. French Dispatch. In many ways, it feels like a parody of a Wes Anderson movie. So I, that should not be the one that you first watch. Go watch okay. the other ones first. And then if you ever feel really bored and yeah. want to watch the French Dispatch, you can do so. A <laughs> couple of reviews from the film. Uh, Adam Naiman of Reverse Shot. The three major episodes in the French Dispatch are of roughly equivalent length, weight, and quality. Although, to be honest... I only really like the first one. So, same as me, the Del Toro story. Uh, Adam, Amy Nicholson loved it from Film Week. I think it's marvelous from minute to minute. So, French Dispatch, currently in theaters from Wes Anderson. He directed it as he does all his films and co-wrote it this time with Roman Coppola and Hugo Guinness. That is the new. The wild card is still coming, which is Jeffrey Lyons, noted film critic. But the old is Monster's Ball. 20th anniversary. Oh, by the way, I have to tell you, the most memorable line from the movie, you know, when I go to the movies, people ask me, do I take a notepad? I don't. I should start doing it, though, because sometimes I want to make notes. So I, I quickly type this into my phone. The, the one asked me to Timothy Chalamet, which, again, because I do like to work blue, he's talking about this girl he's dating, and the voiceover says, she watched me pee. Would you still remember the taste of my tool on her tongue, I wondered. And I <laughs> Jesus. Said, okay, that's a pretty unique line, only from a Wes Anderson movie. Like, he's imagine, back. Cody, if you, would, would you ever in life be doing anything and, like, in your voiceover say... Would she still remember the taste of my tool on her tongue? <laughs> I would not. Monsters Ball, 20th anniversary. Now we get heavy and serious. After mm. a family tragedy, a racist prison guard re-examines his attitudes while falling in love with the African-American wife of the last prisoner he executed. This film came out, you know, that great indie stretch of the 90s and early 2000s. Billy Bob Thornton was a remarkable actor of that era. Sling Blade, of course, he won an Academy Award. The Man Who Wasn't There is one of my favorites with uh, the Coen brothers and Monsters Ball. He's a previous guest on Cinephile. We're nearing episode 200. I think this is number 198. And Billy Bob Thornton is definitely in my top 10 guests we've ever had on Cinephile. He came by the studio, he came to ESPN, and he was promoting Bad Santa 2. Ah, did Booker he have Mc... a vibe? He looks like he'd have a vibe. Oh yeah, Booger McFarlane was cutting my grass, so, like I'm trying to get him in the studio, and Booger interrupts and just starts to... just wearing him out. And Billy Bob was very nice, and then eventually Booger says, like, I'm Booger McFarlane. Billy Bob says, no, I know who you are. But then thankfully he turned to me and like, I know who you are. I'm like, yeah, all right, yes. let's go. Huge yes. St. Louis Cardinals fan, you know, I obviously want to talk baseball. And, and that, like, oh, the great Literally, the joys of doing this podcast. We do the pod at the end. He turned to me because oh, I knew you knew movies, but I didn't know you knew that much. I'm like, yes, yeah. props oh. to Billy Bob Thornton. So I love the guy. Before I start talking about the film, though, I'm thrilled that Chris Cody attempted to watch it. You got through 30 minutes. What do you think so far of Monsters I, Ball? I was enjoying it. I mean, Billy Bob Thornton, a real jerk so far in the movie. I don't know if he has like a turn where he becomes a, a nicer guy. I had Green Mile vibes the first half hour, you know, <laughs> it's like well, for what they do for a living. Uh, but no, I was into it. I just, it wasn't that I wasn't into it. I just had to go do something and I never got back to it. But I'm going to finish it, so maybe in a couple weeks I'll give you my Monster Ball review. <laughs> but I'm more curious, you mentioned him knowing who you are. Now, that got me thinking, who's the most famous person that knows who you are? It's Michael Keaton, Will Arnett, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. It's in okay. that film. Herschel Ali, I mean, he's won two Academy Awards. He knows so you don't think Bob De Niro remember? Like, if you said, if, if I just said to Bob De Niro right now, Adnan Verk, <laughs> you don't think he'd be like, oh, that's a TV guy. He does Baseball Tonight. No. I love and, his takes on the Jays. So he'd have no yeah. idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. 
But I think the Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton, Billy Bob Thornton, like that, that's pretty good for me. I'll yeah. take those. Maybe Will Mark Arnett, Wahlberg? probably not on their level in terms of fame, right? Okay. I mean, Will Arnett, about, he's, a, he's a well known, but I don't think Mark Wahlberg would know who I am. Maybe Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey apparently is a pretty big sports guy, and he's a big Priscilla guy, so he, he may have heard me a lot with Ryan. I think McConaughey's yeah. pretty good star power. All right, that's good. Who's the most famous person that would know? Dan Marino. Uh, I don't know. He would have no clue who I am. Maybe Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade would know who you are because he's a fan of like he's been on the Levitard show a bunch. Like, there's no, he doesn't know who I am. What am I thinking? <laughs> I don't know. This is, I'll get back to you next week. This is a good game. This is a good game. I'm going to go Dwayne Wade for now. Um, as far as the film itself is concerned, great performances across the board. Billy Bob Thornton, as Chris said, plays a very nasty guy, racist prison guard, horrible father to his son, the late, great Heath Ledger. You know, if you want to see another Heath Ledger film that you may have overlooked over the years, he plays his son, very tortured. Uh, their job, as I said, they're, they're prison guards. I mean, they're walking Puff Daddy. That's right. Sean Puffy Combs is living his last days, and Billy Bob and Heath Ledger have to do the last walk with him. His wife is the great Halle Berry, who plays Letitia Musgrove, the best performance of her career. She won the Academy Award Best Actress. I believe the first black actress to win Best Actress. I believe I had that right back in 2001, because Denzel won for Training Day. Um, Sidney Poitier won Best Actor years ago, Lily's in the Field, but the fact that Halle Berry and Denzel won that year, that was history-making, and she deserves it. I mean, her performance is raw, vulnerable. She sees her husband die in death row. She has a son who's obese and also endures a tragedy, and therefore she finds some compassion. I don't want to spoil this now for Cody, but she finds a little bit of compassion that I believe about Thornton's character. What the film is very much known for, I remember at the time, this very graphic sex scene. I want you to make me feel good. I want you it make me feel good. That'll make sense after you see the movie. Uh, Halle Berry, and it's intercut with this, like this caged bird. The reason I mention this is in the, the DVD, which of course I own, the director's commentary is hysterical. Mark Forster is talking. He's like a very serious guy. And Billy Bob Thornton is also in the commentary track, and he's like the wise-ass in the room just constantly making jokes. Like Mark Forster is talking about, hey, we shot this deep in the Deep South, and it's very serious, and the subject matter is about race relations and men and women and finding love. And then Billy Bob's just they're like tossing wisecracks. If you ever have the DVD or the time to get the commentary track, take a listen. And one of the thought, Peter Boyle, who was amazing in Taxi Driver. Remember that great scene where De Niro's <laughs> trying to get some advice from him? And De Niro then says, that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Peter Boyle, who also you know from Everybody Loves Raymond, this is a much different role for him. This is not Ray Romano's dad. This is the very racist father of yes. Billy Bob Thornton's character. He has an excellent scene with Halle Berry as well in which he comes to the house. So I don't want to spoil too much, but 20th anniversary Monsters Ball. If you like Halle Berry, you'll love it. If you want to see a graphic sex scene of her in Billy Bob Thornton, you'll love it. And if you're a Billy Bob Thornton fan like me, you'll love it. I just thought it was an excellent, excellent film. 20th anniversary. It's worth a revisit. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I have not uh, gone to that scene yet. <laughs> but no, you were right. Halle Berry, the only black actress to ever win. A bunch have been nominated, but in 2001, she's the only one that's won still. Jeez, that's crazy. Come on, Academy. Let's get going. Only one, Halle Berry. Uh, it yeah. is an awesome performance. There's no question about it. So two movies to check out. By the way, a couple of uh, critic reviews here. Uh, Carl Quinn of The Age. Letitia and Hank come together in their grief, and when they do, when in particular, they seek some kind of punishment and absolution in sex. It makes for one of the most intense, moving, and real moments you're ever likely to witness on film. I want you to make me feel good. Neil Minow of Common Sense Media, this brutal movie is for adults only. How about that review? This brutal movie is for adults only. And Mark Carroll of Chicago Tribune, a serious movie made by seriously talented people, and I never quite came around to it. Come on, Mark, you suck. Monsters Ball is a great movie. That's the old Monsters Ball. The new is The French Dispatch. And now The Wild Card, father of Ben Lyons and author and film critic Jeffrey Lyons. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It's a real pleasure to bring in one of the best film critics ever. His name is Jeffrey Lyons. He has also spawned Ben Lyons, a good friend of mine and a friend here of Cinephile. We're going to talk some movies today with Jeffrey. We're going to talk about his beloved Boston Red Sox, who unfortunately fell to the Houston Astros. We're also going to talk about Hemingway and me. Excellent new book, Letters, Anecdotes, and Memories of a Life-Changing Friendship, which Jeffrey wrote. It's all about the relationship not only he had with Ernest Hemingway, one of the greatest writers of all time, arguably the greatest American writer of the 20th century, but also his father, Leonard Lyons, Ben's grandfather, had with Ernie Hemingway. Jeffrey, let's begin with a book here. I, I, when I go through it, Jeffrey, I bookmark all the things I find interesting. I love the fact that you have so many great stories about your dad's relationship with Hemingway. Two guys who uh, clearly could not be more dissimilar. Hemingway, brawny, shirt off, out there fishing, hunting, picking up women, carousing. Your dad, not a teetotaler, <laughs> urbane New York writer, and yet he and Hemingway seem to have so much in common. Do you think it came down to the fact they were both brilliant writers and respected each other for that? Why do you think they got along so well? He was a teetotaler, which means he didn't drink at all. Not was not a teetotaler. He trusted my father. I think it was Sherman Billingsley or Toot Shore who introduced them in the, in the late 30s. And Hemingway started a chat with my dad, and he began to tell him stories, and oh, my father only printed what Hemingway said, nothing, nothing in confidence. What Hemingway said, you can use this and use and, and other columnists were, were not like that back then. You know, New York had about 11 newspapers back then. And when I was growing up, we had seven papers. Every day we, we had seven papers to read what the other columnists said. And I grew up knowing all who, who all those people were. And Hemingway trusted him, and he didn't trust many other people. And when my dad would go on a uh, flight, he would sometimes ask people to write guest columns. Jimmy Durante wrote one saying he was the price writer. He had two fights, one in the ring, a knockout, and one, the second one came when he got home. But uh, also Margaret Bork White, 
people like that. But Hemingway refused to do it. He said, that's not the kind of writing I can do. But he got, my dad got Salvador Dali to write a guest column. It was a different world. But he, they, when Hemingway was hunting lions and elephants back in the day when you could do that and exposing himself to danger, not like some people we know in recent years who look through a telescope and kill an animal. And my dad was hunting stories around New York. So they had that in common. Hunters and gatherers of a different type. Like I said, I'm just going to dive into sections that I laughed at. This was, um, <laughs> this is when Gary Cooper was in For Whom the Bell Tolls, one of my favorite books. John McCain, one of his favorite books. He was featured in the Ken Burns documentary. Uh, the film stars Ingrid Bourbon, Gary Cooper. He didn't take his coat off, said Hemingway of his pal Cooper's portrayal. Cooper portrayed Robert Jordan, the American volunteer fighting with the doomed Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. That's a hell of a way for a guy to make love with his coat on. That's true. That was probably the director's call. But one time he and Cooper were driving in Montana, I guess it was, and they stopped in a gas station and Cooper filled up the car, or as they used to call them, filling station. And he wrote a check for $2 or something. Hemingway said, why'd you do that? He said, I know he'll never cash the check. He'll want to frame it. And they went to another filling station. And of course, they didn't know who Hemingway was. And they... (laughs) Oh, it's funny when those things work out. You think the fame is there and it isn't. You mentioned the fact, listen, the hunting was so much about it, about his life, and, and certainly he had a passion for it. This is interesting here. You're talking about he loaded the 22 rifle, then showed my 14-year-old brother George how to hold it. The boy fired and missed. You've got to shoot as if it's going to kill you if you don't kill it, Papa told him. George fired again. The bottle smashed dead center. Then my second son, Warren, took the gun, and Papa showed him how to aim. Warren seemed nervous, and Hemingway talked to him softly. You've got to get calm first, calm inside, as if you're in a church when that lion's coming toward you. You get calm inside. You've got something to believe in. Then shoot the son of a bitch. There's a real artistry to this, wasn't it? You go to YouTube and you type in Hemingway and the lion's family, you will see those moments. Uh, and you will see him putting his arm around me, teaching me how to fire. You know, I was I, I loved what cowboy pictures when I was growing up. I loved watching cowboy pictures on TV. And to see, I walked around with two two plastic guns, different times. But to see a, a, a great writer say, "We've had bandits here in Cuba. Here, I'm going to show you how to fire a gun." I my eyes were coming out of my head. And he he noticed in that quote that you gave. He said, "When the lion is coming towards you." That's how he hunted. He didn't assassinate animals like some of these trophy hunters today, 200 yards away through a telescope. He put himself in danger. I'm not justifying shooting animals. Those were different times, too. He, he, he had an elk charge and lion charge and cheetahs, all, all those kind of, he exposed himself to danger. He's also one of the toughest guys who ever lived. Um, so many times he cheated death. He's crashes. He served in wars. How about this? This is page 65. After proper examination, they found I bought it pretty thoroughly. Full concussion. Loss of sight of left eye. Optic nerve is regenerating okay. Loss of hearing left ear. Ruptured right kidney. Ditto liver and spleen. Intestines collapsed. Paralysis of spleen. Couldn't shit for 22 days. Then it's 62 movements. Complete with cramps in 20 hours, all standing up. If I sit down, my lower intestine comes out running as an indestructible can be a tough trade so we'll skip the atrocities but tell the boys nothing is bad if you say to it go fuck yourself right uh, this today this what we call too much information uh <laughs> you know my dad never had anything like that happen to him thank god i will say this after the first plane crash they were rescued by an, a rescue plane and the second plane crashed and all the other columnists and writers were saying Hemingway is dead. And it was like my father had that column prepared, but he had another column prepared saying, thank goodness he's, a, and Hemingway got out of it alive. 
And Hemingway was in my father's debt for not reporting that he had been killed by, by waiting. Let's hear. Let's let, let, let's get. That's how we knew we could trust him. You mentioned the fact it was a different time in there. What I really loved about the book, once again, we're talking with Jeffrey Lyons. Go buy this book. It's called Hemingway and Me. The forward is by Liam Neeson. What I loved about it was your honesty. As you said, it was a different time. You yourself were enraptured and fascinated by bullfights. Yeah. And today you, you could ask a certain group of people, they'll say, that's horrific. It's what a horrible practice. And you said, listen, as a young man, I was enamored of it. I could see the artistry behind it. And I thought that was interesting the way you described bullfighting and why you were excited by it. And they still are uh, held on. And I'm still enraptured by it. Uh, it's not the, what it once was. It is a, it's not a sport. And I can't defend it here. And I would, any aficionado would oppose bullfighting in this country. But the people who oppose it, they're right. That why don't they also go after people who uh, fire shots at helpless birds or whip horses so they can run faster and they breed horses with spindly legs and go fishing and put a hook in a fish? And you want to, you want to go to all those? They're almost as, as culpable. A fighting bull is the most dangerous animal in the world. It can beat a racehorse in 100 yards, jump higher than a kangaroo, and charge anything that, that, that moves. It's not the color that makes them charge. He sees red is a, is, is a misnomer. It's the movement. And when they're with their brothers, in the, I've been in the fields with fighting bulls, they are timid. But if you, put, if you corner them, you, keep them in a, you put them in an arena, they, they go out and look for something to kill. It's an amazing breed. They live longer than, I'm not trying to justify it, I'm trying to explain it. They live longer than the, than the bull that's killed in a slaughterhouse hang, hung upside down and, and having its throat slit. And they live among all the cows they want. And they, they, they live in, in beautiful ranches. And what they do is they, they put the salt lick about a quarter of a mile away from the water. So when they lick the salt, they walk over in some ranches, uh, hard terrain strengthens their legs. And the, 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 the ganaderias, where those are the ranches where they raise fighting bulls, are the same as Calumet Farms has a certain kind of racehorse, and another farm has another kind of racehorse, same with fighting bulls. And you contract to fight bulls from a certain ranch because you know those bulls' tendencies. It's fascinating. I love that you're an authority on the subject. I was talking to Ben the other day how much I enjoyed the book, and I said, I really liked how you talked to different actors who played Hemingway. Ben said, of course, that was his idea, and specifically, Corey Stoll. He had great stories about playing Hemingway in the Woody Allen film, Midnight in Paris. All of them played Hemingway, most of them, at the end of his life or the middle part of his life. They did it in a completely different way. In Speaking of that movie, Midnight in Paris, Woody did a, a funny thing. There's a bullfighter character in it, and he calls himself Juan Belmonte, which was, who was a great bullfighter. But he's played by some very handsome Swedish actor I haven't seen before or since. Because Americans think of bullfighters as Rudolph Valentino and all these. <laughs> but Juan Belmonte was a little banty-legged man who couldn't get out of the way of the big lumbering bulls of his era. So he moved him out of his way and revolutionized bullfighting. So he looked nothing like But Robert Evans played Juan, uh, what was it called? Juan Romero, I think, uh, in The Sun Also Rises. And Robert Evans went to Yankee Stadium the opening game of the 1957 World Series. And as you know, right before the first pitch, there's a hush on the stadium. A perfectly tailored suit behind a perfectly tailored shirt, behind a perfectly manicured hand, in front of Hemingway's vision, and said, Mr. Hemingway, I play the bullfighter, and the sun also rises. And Hemingway, who had seen the rush, said, no, you didn't. <laughs> I used to kid him about that all the time, because he knew he was a handsome, terrible actor, who later went on to save Paramount Pictures and become a Hollywood executive. I was about to say, The Godfather and Chinatown and Love Story and all the rest of Robert Evans and all. And The Kid Stays in the Picture, by the way. Great book and documentary, as you know. Um, 
I think all of Hemingway's work still holds up, particularly the early stuff. The Sun Also Rises, I think, is incredible. Farewell to Arms, I love that last section because as one of the writers explained it in the Ken Burns documentary, you get all the manly stuff, the heroism and the war, but there's real heartbreak at the end of the Farewell to Arms. Like, it's a really genuinely sad story uh, about childbirth and, and the child dying at the end. For you, personal favorite of Hemingway's, For Whom the Bell Tolls, uh, Old Man of the Sea? A couple of them. Uh, one you're not going to be able to, 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 to pinpoint was The Dangerous Summer. That's 59. It was published posthumously. Uh, it's not a novel. It's about the summer that Antonio Ordonia, his son, mano a mano, which means hand to hand, not man to man, mano a mano, uh, with his brother-in-law, Luis Miguel Domenguin. They went all over Spain. Instead of three matadors facing two bulls apiece, two matadors faced three bulls apiece. I say that because in 1961, a month before he died, Hemingway had been told that I was nuts about bullfighting. I had been to Spain two summers to learn Spanish. And he arranged for me to travel with his godson, Antonio Ordonia. And he thought it would be for two weeks. It turned into seven summers. Antonio became a brother to me. And uh, his grandsons, Francisco and Calle, their father was killed in the arena. They, the mother didn't want them to become bullfighters. So we, they came to us and we sent them to camps in Maine. Of course, they became great bullfighters. If you go to 60 Minutes, Blood Brothers, you'll see uh, the late Bob Simons, full hour on 60 Minutes about the two brothers. But Antonio was the, unlike other bullfighters, he had an intellectual curiosity. My father got him a tour of the UN from Secretary General Uthant. And he turned to the Secretary General and said, I owe this to the fighting bulls. If it weren't for the bulls, I'd be a shoeshine boy in my hometown of Ronda, where bullfighting was first done. And Antonio could find a Spanish, he, he didn't speak a word of it. He knew, knew how to say one thing in English. Okay, Mac. And he, he could find a Spanish-speaking waiter in Bondurant, Wyoming. He could find, he had an, and he explored this country with a curiosity most bullfighters don't have. He was the most amazing guy I ever knew. And cigarettes killed him, not, not the bulls. But he was the greatest. Hemingway uh, anointed him the better of the two brothers. Domenguin had the suit designed by Picasso and the girlfriend Ava Gardner. And, and, and they were the great rivals. And in 1971, I was headed to spend that summer with Antonio. And Domingue had been on the Dick Cavett show the night before, and I ran into him in the airport, and he knew my dad. So I said, I was going to spend the summer with the competition, your brother-in-law. He said, come with me, too. So I spent a day traveling with his entourage, and besides Hotchner, Hemingway's uh, editor, and Hemingway, the only one who's traveled with both of those great matters. So in that regard, The Dangerous Summer is one of my favorites. But also, The Sun Also Rises. It's just, and if you go to Pamplona, there are adjoining streets Calle Ernesto Hemingway and Calle Orson Welles. Orson taught me the basics of bullfighting. Barnaby Conrad, the great writer, talked to me about, I read all his books about bullfighting. Orson Welles and Daryl Zanuck. We were on the set of The Sun Also Rises and Daryl Zanuck. So there I was, 14, 15 years old, learning from these people. So when I was ready in 61 to travel with him, I knew what was going on. I, I didn't have to be schooled in anything. I was ready. It's amazing, too. Like It reminds me of what you're talking about, Hemingway, and the way he was. Like I've seen some clips of him, and... And it's antithetical to what you might examine, specifically physically. Like his voice, he had like kind of a higher Midwestern <laughs> twang, right? Like he, you pictured this like baritone voice. That's not what Ernest Hemingway sounded like. Almost like, uh, what was her name? The, the John, like his name, John Gilbert, the silent screen star, whose career was ruined when sound pictures came because he had a high-pitched voice. <laughs> but, I mean, it wasn't like that at all. But that would not go with the image. So actors were smart not to do that, not to try to replicate that. But we were talking about traveling in Spain. I'm with the bullfighters in the third of the three cars in the entourage in 1964. I'm sitting in the front seat. We're in the middle of Spain. I turn on the radio, the shortwave, and I get Phil Rizzuto doing a Yankee-Cleveland game. 
And now I got to explain to the guys what a earned run average is and what a ground <laughs> ball out is. And it was Leon's first game. And when I saw him at spring training, I said, I explained it to him. And he said, yes. And he started to give me a description of every single pitch of that game, which I in Spain with bullfighters in a DeSoto limousine going top speed, 55 miles an hour. You can't get better than that story. Baseball and movies, Jeffrey Lines dominates them all. Hemingway and me, I encourage everyone to check out the book, Letters, Anecdotes, and Memories of a Life-Changing Friendship. A couple of movie topics for you. One is that I talked to George Gallo last year, and I brought you up because I said, you know, you made a film, which everyone always asks what's your favorite Christmas movie, and I mentioned this film called 29th Street, which you know George Gallo wrote and directed. And I said, Jeffrey Lyons had the perfect blurb for it. The reason I even watched the movie was the video cassette said, it's a cross between Goodfellas and It's a Wonderful Life. And I said that to George Gallo, and he said, yeah, that was perfect. He said, when Jeffrey said that, like, you nailed my exact film. He just said it like in one sense, rather making an hour and 45-minute movie. I don't know what memories you have of that film. This is the 30th anniversary of this year. Danny Aiello, Anthony LaPaglia. I think it's a great film. I wonder what Joey Gallo thought of the film. But anyway, <laughs> Danny Aiello and I founded the, the, the New York Show League after we were kicked out of the Broadway Show League because we insisted on fast-pitch softball. Not windmill, but not that nerdy lob ball. Fast-pitch softball. And I played 49 seasons. Danny called himself the Vic Power of Central Park, the greatest field. And I loved it. And he said he bought one ticket. The true story, guy bought one ticket for the lottery, and he, and he won the lottery. And it was perfect for the role. And, and, and the best line is played by Robert Forster, I think, who plays his father. And the line is, what are you, a mama Luke? And that's my favorite line of the movie. I miss his friendship a lot. Incredible actor, of course, do the right thing. You know, boycott Sal's. You can't do much better than Danielle in that movie. Dune, I asked Ben, I go, what did your dad think? He goes, I'm, I'm not going to force my dad to watch Dune. There's just no way. But you did watch a film that, which might win Best Actress uh, for an actress, uh, Kristen Stewart. You and Ben just saw the movie. Tell us about it. Called Spencer. And when I heard that she was playing, it's not about Jim Spencer, the old Yankee. I thought it was going to just retell everything about how Princess Di met and died. No, it's the true story. If I can invent a word, fabulized, it's a fable of the three days she spent at one of the dreary royal estates with the family. And the family, the royal family are never identified by name, but we know who they are, how they were cold and aloof to her and how she was saying, get me out of here and, 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 and slowly going mad there. And you understand what happened, what, what the real story between the two of them were. And it's a great performance. Her British accent is perfect. And I didn't know she had it. I thought she was, oh, the Twilight Girl. She played uh, Jean Seberg. And she was more remarkable in it. So she'll be a strong Oscar contender. You never know. Cary Grant never won an Oscar. Judy Garland never won an Oscar. Marlene Dietrich never won an Oscar. Will Ferrell. Kirk Douglas never won an Oscar. He was awarded an Oscar. Never won. So you never know with them. It does always get frustrating. And last one, just because when you're talking to a film critic, you've seen more movies than people could ever imagine. I, don't, I never want to ask people what's your favorite film. I think that's impossible to answer. But give us some of your favorites. Favorite is The Graduate. And, you know, I didn't go see the Dune film. I didn't understand the first one. <laughs> and I might be saying, unfortunately, my seat was facing the screen. I, I, I just, I'm not into Dune. I'm not into the, to, uh, what's the one with Will, Will Smith and the, the Matrix? Life is too short. I can. <laughs> I want. I'm heard on radio. It's my show, my report. I can pick. I don't always like the movie. But I can. I a wonderful movie yesterday called Spanish Lessons with Mark and Natalie Morales, not the TV correspondent. And it's about a Spanish teacher in Colombia teaching via Zoom to a guy in Oakland, California, and they form an unusual relationship. And those are the kind of films that need to have people talking about them, not just. If you look at a lot of TV, all the all the ads have people with guns in them, and 
violence and, and special effects, but there's a room for many other kinds of film. But The Graduate is my favorite film. I saw it at the right time in my life. And so one day, if I'm, do I have a minute? It's on our 15th wedding anniversary, uh, I ran into Sa Paul Simon in the morning. Oh, my God, my favorite. I ran into Art Garfunkel, my brother's roommate in college, the other side of the same. And then across the street, we're heading out to dinner with Justin Hoffman with his then wife. He said, we're, he said, I know The Graduate's your favorite film, but you haven't been kind to me since. We're kidding around. <laughs> About 15 minutes. Now, guys don't like, most guys don't like to stand and chat for 15 minutes. They pull a George Bush and look at their watch. He said, where are you going? I said, we're going to this little French restaurant and it's our wedding anniversary. Time we got there, there's a bottle of champagne from him. So I was saying, I don't care if you make, what, what's that film he, he did with Warren Beatty? Ishtar. I don't care if you make Ishtar too. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I should have said that because Ishtar is one of the worst films you can see. Horrific. Well, let's get out of here with this. Give me an Al Pacino story. Because I asked you once about De Niro, and you said, listen, he's one of the worst interviews I've ever suffered through in my life. I can't tell you a great De Niro story. But what about Al? Have you, do, you have, do you have a Pacino story for me? Direct Pacino story. Uh, I married a flight attendant for TWA. And the woman who introduced me to my wife was a woman named Suzanne Curry. And one day she's in the shower, and the doorbell rings. She's, she's about 5'10". Doorbell rings, and all she can see in the, in the, in the peephole is a bouquet of flowers. And he says, Linda? She said, no, I think you have the wrong room. He says, well, my name is Al Pacino, and I've just landed a role in a movie called The Godfather. Would you have dinner with me? She said, thank you very much. I can't. So that's my Pacino, big baseball guy, of course, born in the Bronx. Uh, Jeffrey Lides is the best. I've had the pleasure of having a burger with him at Wahlburgers just outside Fenway Park with his son, Ben. He's been a guest on MLB Network a year or two ago. I think we had you on pre-pandemic, talking movies, talking baseball. Check out Hemingway and Me, his new book, Letters, Anecdotes, and Memories of a Life-Changing Friendship. Keep watching MLB Network. I appreciate your support, and I love the movie talk, and obviously I love Ben. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks. Jeffrey Lines, make sure you go read Hemingway and me. He also has a book about the Boston Red Sox, which he sent me. But as you can tell, I had no interest in talking with the Boston Red Sox with him. But Jeffrey Lines has two new books out, Hemingway and me and the Boston Red Sox. And the book. man can sing. And the man can sing. Yeah, what did you, th what did you think of the interview <laughs> overall? Like, I mean, what did you, listen, you love Ben Lyons, as do I. Ben's the best. What did you think of his father? I mean, I, I'm, I'm biased because I like Ben Lyons. And his dad, I could just see where all the delightfulness comes from. But, you know, his dad also, he's, his dad's, like, you know, Ben Lyons seems like the ultimate nice guy. Jeffrey Lyons looks like a He'll tell you how he really feels if he needs to, though. But I always think it's fascinating. Like, people meet you and immediately go, oh, your, your dad's Greg. Oh, of course, I've been reading him for years, whatever. Yeah. So it's funny when you are the son of a recognizable right. person, right? right? Whenever you meet people, people already think they know you because, like, oh, I know your dad. Of course, Greg Cody. And especially now with the show, oh, you're oh, the hard album, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, okay, my dad's more than just that. <laughs> he's, he's actually my father. Because you're right. I'll say this. When you do meet the son of someone you know, you do start to make connections, meaning you're very funny, and I see where the humor comes with Greg, yes. your dad. So similarly with Ben and Jeff, like Ben is a mm -hmm. great storyteller, and obviously, as you just heard, Jeffrey Lyons is nothing if not a great storyteller. Yep. No, they're great. Both lines. I'm a big fan of the Lyons. The Lions you, you actually, I mean, like, I honestly only remember, I only knew Ben Lyons, like, we were tr we were people that followed each other. Our interview, me, yeah. our, 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 our friendship has taken a, a step, me and Ben Lyons. We might even get dinner sometime. I might get dinner with Ben Lyons soon. 
Well, listen, I don't know how much people heard in the pod, how much you edited it out, but like he was excited to talk to you. Like he's always yeah. happy, but he was like, Cody, what's up? Like he he dropped about seven Levitar references. So he was. I see a, I see a nice six way dinner at some point with Adnan, his wife, me, my wife, Ben, and his like. Maybe we'll even bring Jeff, his dad. Okay, that'd be great if his dad shows up yeah. as well. Just to tell us Let's some go. Stories. Let's do this. All right. Love a good look dinner. Forward that, look forward to that seven way dinner at some point. Yeah. In the meantime, who thanks pays? So much that'd be a weird so pay situation. How, how would that work? Like, are we all yeah. throwing in credit cards there? We just get a Venmo going. I mean, Adnan and, and Ben are clearly the most successful, and Jeff are so much more successful yeah, you're not than little old Chris. You and your wife so, like, yeah, there, I yeah. just feel like. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Cody. Have another piece of cheesecake. <laughs> not me. No problem. We'll go to Prime One Twelve. Another bottle house. of wine. Another butt for the table. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to that dinner. Look forward to the next set of file. Please go to Apple Podcast, subscribe, rate, review. One last minute, I did want to ask you. Just say congratulations to Metal Arc. If you're not aware, John Skipper, Dan Levitard, and company signing a first look deal with Apple. People are asking me, what does that mean for Cinephile? I said, I think nothing, but it's just good news for the company, right? It means that all my ideas that I pitch won't get thrown to Apple. I feel like those will reach some sort of buffer because, like, we are in, I'm kind of in a spot now. You are too, essentially. You throw a good documentary idea, Dan, boom. Next thing you know, you're an EP on something. So, like, I have been racking my brain. You see now where I'm turning this. I'm turning this announcement into how can I create something. But no, this is really cool for the company. And it's just, this company has, it's been like six months and they're kicking ass so far. It's pretty cool. I love it. Shit got real. Coming up on next week in Cinephile, Leonard Malton, the great film critic. He has a new book coming out. Going to talk to him about that. Plus a new film, Spencer. Ben Lines told me, Kristen Stewart. Yeah, Kristen Stewart from Twilight. He said she's definitely going to get an Academy Award nomination. She might even win the Oscar. She plays Lady Diana. New film called Spencer. It's out in theaters. I'll have my review for you next week. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.